0: who is raising children. And it's not really parents, it's not teachers, it's not coaches or clergymen. It's
1: Twitter influencers. They're the ones that have the ears and souls of our children. Today, I sit down with law professor Adam Kandup. For years, Kandup has been immersed in First Amendment law and advocates for the common carrier approach in dealing with Section 230, the federal provision that grants social media companies protections from liability.
0: This rather limited protection that sort of mimicked the telephones and telegraphs has morphed into
1: a protection of the platforms for anything they do. KANDUB is currently involved in a number of major cases, both at the state and federal level, that will likely shape the future of big tech's impact on our society. We have given power to these agencies, the gobbledygook
0: alphabet soup of, of security agencies that are not really accountable to anybody. Like any other agency, they tend to be co-opted by special interests.
1: This is American Thought Leaders, and I'm Yanya Jekielek. Adam Kandub, such a pleasure to have you on American Thought Leaders. A real pleasure. Thank you for having me. So you've been working for years on First Amendment law, teaching it... Um, arguing cases. Right now, there is a number of cases related at the Supreme Court, I think quite significant cases. You've also been deeply involved in coming up with this uh, common carrier approach to dealing with big tech or Section 230. We've heard a lot about Section 230. I'm gonna get you to explain a little bit about the details. Um, Before we go there, Okay, I'll, I'll mention another thing. You've been involved in uh, coming up with the concepts that have now been implemented in a Utah social media law. Okay, and which is I actually think is quite significant and might give people an idea of you know how you think about law and how you think about these things. Right. So um,
0: involvement with um, protecting children on,
1: on the internet
0: is not something that gets a lot of. Um, press or news, but actually there's an appetite for it. I think a lot of the states want um, what I want for the internet, which is an internet that is based upon user control. And I think with minors, that means parental control. And it's amazing how with the internet, technology has smashed so many expectations that people think it's fine for for their children to essentially create contracts with these social media companies. They take their, their personal information, they, they give them legal um, requirements and, and, and um, legal obligations, all without parental knowledge or consent. Um, and so this is something very new, very different, and we've sort of accepted it for the last 10 years. And um, so um, I, a lot of people have been saying this is not the right way to go. Um, and I worked with um, Gene Twenge, who's a leading social um, psychologist at. at um, uh, San Diego State University, who's worked in demonstrating the um, emotional and psychological harm that social media has, has imposed upon our children. Um, I've worked with Bill Wilcox for the um, Institute for Family Studies at UVA, and uh, Claire Morrell, um, who works at the um, Ethics and Policy Center in Washington, D.C., and we came up with a report of, of some suggestions of, of how the states um, can actually give more power to parents, because, let's face it, Parents don't raise children these days. Screens do. And that's a frightening thing. I mean, that's
1: social disintegration. Well, and, and there's just the obvious thing, which is, for example, you know, pornography being easily accessible to children right now that I think most people would be deeply concerned about.
0: The transformation of porn, um, of, of the way people live, the way young people live, um, is one of the sort of un, unrecognized uh, shifts in our society. I think it's because it's kind of embarrassing and sort of yucky to think about. Um, but you know, certainly when I look at my students in their 20s, they're a lot less um, active <laughs> romantically than I remember myself being. Um, and you know, this is not just you know, an old guy um, uh, criticizing the young generation. I mean, there's plenty of data showing um, that young people are not as romantically involved. They're marrying less. They're going on dates less. They're having sex less. Um, and to me pornography does very likely play a role in that because it provides a substitute and a distraction from from you know from romance and and the and, and the dance of the sexes and if we don't have people marrying and forming love relationships and having children, it's the end. <laughs> and we are looking at civilizational collapse, and that's not just hysterical conservatives saying that. If you look at the data, it's shocking how few people in their 20s and 30s are getting married and having kids and doing the things that traditionally have allowed people to live flourishing, happy lives.
1: Well, first of all, why don't you explain to me how this new social media law works in Utah and also you know, the implications? Sure. So um, the social media law largely does, does uh, two or three things of,
0: of, of significance. It says no social media firm can form any sort of account with a minor without the parental consent. And that doesn't mean just click-through consent. You just sort of say, you know, I, I hereby assert and affirm that I am a, of, of uh, um, uh, majority age. Uh, there has to be an independent third party um, verification. Uh, it requires the social media companies to um, give access to ch- minors' accounts to their parents so parents can see what they're doing, um, I, you know to I me mean, that's so vital because Who is who is raising children? It's 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 not really parents. It's not teachers. It's not coaches or clergymen. It's Twitter influencers, and uh, they're the ones that have the ears and souls of our children. And your parents should be able to know about that. Or TikTok. Or TikTok. Exactly. TikTok influencers. Exactly. And um, so. Um, which, you know, in many respects, really means the, you know, the, the, the Communist Party of China. So th- that's a problem. Um, and 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 Utah said no. Um, parents should have access. We see a, a tremendous amount of mental deterioration. Um, among young people, rates of depression, suicidal thoughts, um, visits to the emergency room because of self-abuse. And again, this is not hysterical old, conservative. I mean, it's the data. I mean, it's uh, it's remarkable. I mean, close to 50% or over 50% of women are on some sort of um, antidepressants or, uh, pharmacolo- psychopharmacological drug um, in, in certain areas, in certain high schools, and uh, this, this, is, this is not, not good. Um, and one of the big debates in the social science community is, you know, is it really social media or is it sleep deprivation? <laughs> it could be something simple like that um, because we know that social media keeps kids up. So w- what the, the Utah statute does is says, look, no social media. For kids um, between the ages of uh, between the times of ten thirty and six thirty a.m. and you know just like to this day there's no indecency programming on broadcast television during those hours just like curfews are imposed and been upheld by courts um, this is the sort of same this is the same thing but in sort of the
1: the internet world as I hear about the man that sounds really restrictive Adam
0: yeah. uh, I, I I guess I mean, but it follows from from all sorts of rules that we've always had. Um, as I said, curfew rules are you know, hundreds of years old, and, and they have been upheld by the courts. Um, children have fewer fewer First Amendment rights um, than adults, and um, you know, for instance, um, indecency programming still exists, uh, regulation still exists for broadcast television. So for those few channels that you get on your cable that are actually broadcast channels, they can't have nudity, they can't say dirty words um, between certain hours of the day. Um, and that's to protect children. Um, and I think we as a society, not so long ago, <laughs> have been quite comfortable with more aggressive efforts. Um, and when you have something like a smartphone which can be you know, smuggled and in, in, into a bedroom and and it, it's very difficult for a parent to control i think that this is an appropriate place for we as a society to say no we have to come up with a rule to help everyone
1: so bottom line is you know websites that are adult websites would have some kind of some kind of dialogue that required third party verification that would make it a you know, th- theoretically impossible for kids to get into that. Well, it doesn't do everything. So it, it, it,
0: it, this limits on, the limit is on account formation because of contract law. So essentially, the state can regulate more easily children's ability to form a contract. The problem again goes back to the boring uh, uh, court rulings. On um, the Supreme Court in Reno, the ACLU said, "No, sorry, <laughs> if you're just trying to block porn, um, age restriction is age verification is too burdensome, and that um, we should have filters instead." They said that in 2002. Perhaps we'll revisit this. Um, other states are moving in legislation to do that. Um, but you know, it does not just block porn. But if, for instance, you want to start an account with you know, porn tube or whatever, you can't do that without your per- your parents' consent.
1: So. Got it. The curfews is the part that I'm kind of uh, What does the society think about this?
0: Well, you know, it, it depends who you, whom you ask, I guess. Um, certainly the sort of corporatist libertarian think tank lobbyist group in DC, they think it's terrible that somehow, you know, children will wither and die if they can't be on social media um, between the hours of 10.30 and 6.30. I think that's a rather sort of esoteric point of view. I think most parents would be quite okay with that. Um, you know, what are they going to do? What horrible things are going to happen? You know, they might read a book. <laughs> they might talk to their parents. You know, maybe even they could watch a movie together with their family. And um, we'll see. I mean, I, I, I think courts will look at that the, that rule and sort of say they could be the absolutists and say, "No, we can't have this. This would be terrible." On the other hand, they, I, I hope they'll be more realistic and sort of say. Look, we sort of need this for family cohesion, for the health of our children, for the future of our society.
1: Well, you know, and it's very interesting to me that you know how deeply you were involved in conceptualizing this, which is something which involves you know the art, the hand of government, really, you know, putting its finger finger on the scale, so to speak. Uh, on the other side of things, you're you're very much you know a strong free speech advocate, right? right? And in, and that's reflected in your in. in your writing and, and the, the cases that you've taken up? I think traditionally we have
0: always allowed the greatest freedom for political discussion. That's essential for our society. Um, but we've always we've also recognized that other sort of images, other sorts of communications, aren't really that great for us. <laughs> and um, I, I think there is a real difference between pornography on the internet and a controversial op-ed or a tweet that people don't, don't that don't like. And I, I'm for that distinction.
1: So there's a huge discussion right now about what's been dubbed the disinformation industrial complex. You know, And when you were actually working in the Trump administration, um, you were looking at some kind of Section 230 reform to deal with perceived overreach by big tech platforms and so forth. Now we're seeing something much bigger that I think many of us and perhaps both you and I didn't quite imagine at the time you know before before 2020 why don't we just very briefly talk about the, again the section 230 reality is interesting because it has it provides a lot of freedom and then it also you know creates huge problems at the same time right so there's some sort of path through the middle and maybe you can just kind of explain this the picture to me
0: sure um, There are sort of two very different but related issues, and they I think they're all sort of connected by the power of big tech um, and its interrelatedness with um, so many, um, you know, agencies and organs of our government, uh, and uh, and not just government but also the nonprofit sectors and academe. Um, so they're able to sort of create this unified front um, to project certain views. Um, certainly. What the Twitter files have revealed um, is something that, you know, I worked in government, (laughs) NTIA, I had no idea. Um, But the degree to which um, the intelligence uh, establishment, law enforcement, is involved in surveilling What Americans do and say, and I think that has a way of something we find often in these debates: this redefining of terms. You know, terrorist threat. Well, we always thought that that was something looking outside the United States. Legal authority that was generally only um, given for to the agencies for surveillance of foreign um, uh, individuals or foreign communications. All of a sudden, have been used, unfortunately, often in the United States. This is added to. Um, this weird little proliferation of all these strange nonprofit organizations that seem to work hand in glove with um, many, you know, the intelligence community to, you know, create warnings and and to, you know, create concepts, as you're talking about, you know, disinformation, misinformation. Whoever even heard these terms until about five or years ago? Um, I never, heard, I mean, disinformation, yeah, you, you, we're talking about, you know, spies in World War II, but nobody ever talked about Misinformation or disinformation on the internet—that's new. That's created. It's created by you know constellations of people who who want to surveil what we say and do. That's that's troublesome. Um, Section two hundred and thirty fits in a little bit differently. I mean, it it, um, it it it's it's a short short statute. I encourage your your viewers to just look at it. Um, it's it's. Two hundred and thirty C is the important one, or C one has become the important one, but really C two was the one that Congress was interested in, and it should be a relatively simple matter. It provides this sort of protection for the big platforms that telephone and telegraph companies have, so when or or even you know common carriers who are carrying packages, so when a a telephone company. Completes a call between two conspirators who are going to commit a crime or who are going to, you know, defame Jan. Um, the, the the two people in the phone call have legal liability. The phone company doesn't, and that's just what well, that's just what Section two thirty C one does. It says, look, you go against the user. Facebook is is has no liability. What the courts have done, and again, is with the help of, you know, the huge. A proliferation um, of big tech money, uh, big tech influence in D.C., in the nonprofits, in academe, um, is say, oh, no, no, no. What C1 covers is anything having to do with speech that platforms do. Well, that's like everything. So, for instance, a, a particular case which I find notable and egregious and unfortunately often cited is um, uh, the Seeks for Justice, which um, it was a claim that... Um, uh, one of the platforms was discriminating against um, the religious community of, of Sikhs on the basis of their religion, and they got C1 protection for that. Now, notice the difference between that and our libel situation. In our libel situation, there were two people saying something defamatory on the phone, and, you know, you can, you can sue the users, you couldn't sue the platform. Here, the Sikhs were saying, oh, no, Facebook discriminated against us, and C1 protected them. And it has just been growing and growing and growing since then. So if, if Facebook says, I promise I'm going to carry your 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 um, postings and I won't censor them, nope. Sense, Facebook censors them. Too bad, so sad, um, C1 protects you. Um, consumer fraud, you make fraudulent claims in violation of, of state law. Too bad, so sad, they involve editorial discretion of the, of the companies, so therefore C1 um, protects you. So, this rather limited protection that sort of mimicked the telephones the telegraphs, and telegraphs, which had for hundreds of years and we couldn't really survive without, um, has morphed into a protection of the platforms for anything they do. And getting back to you know how does this fit into you know this weird world in which there are all these nonprofits you know um, working with um, uh, you know government to censor and surveil? Well, you know, in a way, we're seeing the, the platforms. Working very closely with it, with this group, and largely under the threat of this wonderful, extraordinary legal protection from being taken away, and you know, that's what Biden has said. That is what um, uh, you know. All these these hearings are about. You know these these, these um, senators and Republicans and, and representatives they go, "Oh, if you don't censor more people, we'll take away you know 230C1." and you know, what's a what's a company to do? <laughs> so I, I, I do see these things related. They happen very suddenly, as you pointed out, um, and it's complicated and difficult to describe. So it's 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 a sort of perfect storm for for inadequate democratic surveillance uh, oversight ever, because this sort of emerged and it's hard to explain the situation.
1: That's fascinating because I hadn't realized that on one side, in your view, the. Original rules have been abused, right? The original right. I guess, law yep. has yep, been abused, right? doubt, yes. but. It's it's actually the abuse. It's the the removal of the abuse of that law, which is used as the threat, basically. Yes, exactly. That's right. Um, and uh, and you know, I I've been involved in some of these
0: cases. It's very frustrating because the platforms have been, you know, hire the best lawyers in the country. Um, they are sort of not quite unified, but they, they work loosely together to make sure you know the right sort of opinions are are, are put forward. For instance, the case I used, I referenced. Um, Uh, seeks for justice, was actually pro se for most of the case, and um, so essentially they had a a, a non-lawyer represent themselves against the the death star of, of, of top DC lawyers, and oh, look what happened to the opinion. It, it, it just copied all of this language from from big tech lawyers and that became law. And then that's cited in the next case. And so, you know, it's a unified pressure expanding C1 to the absurd degree. Um, and uh, it, But that's, you know, sort of uh, a mixed bag because now they have this, they rely more and more on this legal liability protection and that becomes a Bigger stick that um, the Democrats can hold over them.
1: Small companies, let's say, that want to break into the social media space, or some kind of space where there are questions of the opinions of people who may have, you know, defamatory opinions, or copyright infringement, or something like this. Right? A company like that would need protection; otherwise, it would be sued out of existence.
0: Right. I mean, I, I see what is originally, originally. Um, conceived of makes sense. It, 231 one makes sense. I mean I Facebook shouldn't be liable for the for the postings of its its users. I don't want them to be liable for that. Um, I do however if they discriminate against you know people on the basis of their religion or their race or as you know Texas social media law will, will come to on the basis of their, their political views, I think there should be some repercussions. Um, these platforms don't communicate anything themselves. Their users use them to communicate. Um, they provide a service, and the service is, is like any other. It's like going to a restaurant. It's like any other public accommodation.
1: And so, I mean, essentially, your argument then is right. Your 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 position is that you just want to, you want to bring it back to what it originally was. That's interesting. I hadn't—I right. didn't fully grasp that. Yeah. No, yeah. I mean, I say I'm yeah. always the conservative. <laughs> the way it was is the best.
0: Um, uh, but yes, exactly. Um, for better or worse, it's been a large part of my uh, legal scholarship has been the history of common carrier law and, and network law and and and, and you know, very boring stuff that I, if we start going into, I think you're no one will, will be listening to this. They'll quickly click off. Um, but that's been the rule for hundreds of years, and it's worked quite successfully. Um, what we find is is a pattern we see so often with the internet um, is that regulators and legislators and people just think, oh, this is so special and new. No, you know, we have to give. Extra protection, or the old rules don't apply, but you know there's nothing new under the sun, and um, I think it'd be best if we return to traditional understandings on this.
1: Well, so this is the perfect opportunity. I want to find out a little bit more about how you came to be studying these, you know, as you describe them, uninteresting things, but things of profound importance to our society today. Um, Yeah, so so just tell me about that, your your path, and you know, and along the way, you've you've had some very interesting cases that caused you a lot of trouble, actually. Yeah, a little heartache. Yeah, uh,
0: yeah. so um, I
1: um, went to law school.
0: Uh, um, uh, I, I went to Penn Law. And I um, afterwards, I clerked for Jake Clifford Wallace, a chief judge of the Ninth Circuit. Um, and then I worked, um, as many people, as an associate in a law firm. Um, and then this was in the, um, actually, late 80, late 90s, 1998, 1999, um, and the Telecommunications Act of 1996, which actually Section 230 is part of, so it's sort of like these leitmotifs of my career he returned to, but it had just been passed. And, and the main part of the, the Telecommunications Act had nothing to do with, with um, uh, the Communications Decency Act. It had to do with local telephone uh, competition, and now people start snoring, but it was this weird concocted effort to create Competition at the local level, extremely regulatory. Lawyers were very busy and I got involved with that. I worked at the FCC for three years during sort of the height of that uh, of those issues. Um, and then I thought I have had enough of DC. There was a telecom bust. Um, and uh, I was very fortunate and I saw what I always wanted to do which was become a professor. And uh, I moved my family out to, to East Lansing, Michigan State. Um, and I, I taught there for about Ten years, you know, quiet Midwestern a life, um, and then I just got involved with these two cases, just by accident, really. Um, one very controversial, um, Jared Taylor, who um, uh, center, um, I think his, his his outfit's called American Renaissance, and he is a, he describes himself as a a. Um, uh, a white advocate, but most of his detractors would call him a white nationalist, um, and he was kicked off Twitter, and also Megan Murphy, who is a, um, a, f- a Canadian feminist uh, from the Vancouver area who was kicked off because she dead-named or misgendered um, a, a very vocal political opponent of hers, and uh, so I got involved with these cases um, really because of Section 230. Um, I always taught my students what I, uh, that the parameters of Section 230 sort of mirrored the old telegraph and telephone um, regulations. Um, I, I always thought that it protected platforms against the libelous or otherwise unlawful statements of their users. And then we got into court, <laughs> it's, like, it's like, oh, that's not the way they do things in California. Um, there are all these new rules that essentially say, oh, no, Section 230 c one protects Twitter's decision that you know Jared Taylor is not worthy of being on on Twitter or Megan Murphy is not worthy of being on Twitter, and they have that editorial discretion to do so, even though it's not in the statute, and that pissed me off. It just got me really angry uh, because it's not the way the system's supposed to work. You, you have a very you have a statute which is very protective of the platforms, which does all the good things that we like. It's allowed entrance of small companies um, and allow people to express themselves um, without making their platforms liable for what they say. And then you see it just made even bigger through really bad
1: arguments and abusive law. So, I started writing a lot about this. Um, and just to be clear, you know, you don't have any particular sympathies to any of these positions. No. Right?
0: Yeah. You know, I'm a middle-aged Jewish uh, law professor. I, I, you know, I'm, not, I'm not a white nationalist. No,
1: no. I, I mean, obviously, but this is kind of imp- I'm, The reason I mention this, it's important in this day and age that people For example, you know, lawyers get criticized. For taking cases, even though lawyers, of course, are supposed to take cases of you know some of the most egregious people right. that should you know that you would never even want to you know meet in a dark alley or even talk to, never mind, right? But but lawyers are supposed to take those cases and to the, defend those people vigorously. That's how our system works. Right. My representation of of, uh, of Jared Taylor has you know,
0: cost me career. I could never move from Michigan State. You know, if I if 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 I hadn't had tenure, it probably would have been very bad for me. Um, but, you know, Jared followed the rules, <laughs> he's polite, and you know, if he goes, well, all ethno-nationalists go. That means, you know, goodbye to, you know, Madame Le Pen, that goes Signora Maloney, the Prime Minister of, of Italy, Victor Orban. That is a slippery slope, and I thought that that was wrong. I mean, he followed the rules, and, and you know, if first him, then what's next? And that's what happened. You know, they were the beginning. He and Megan Murphy were sort of the canaries in the coal mine. And you know, I knew once if they weren't going to follow the rules with them, then they weren't going to follow the rules with anybody. It's a road that led right to President Trump, because it's it was a belief that they had complete editorial control, regardless of civil rights laws, regardless of contract, regardless of consumer fraud, to say who was on their network. Um, and you know, emboldened by cases like like. Jared Taylor's and, and and Megan Murphy's, which we lost, um, the, the platforms were able to do this, and um, yeah, I, I that's why I did this is is that I thought that this was
1: this was the beginning of the end, and I and I hate to say you know, I was right, but I was right. The thing that you I have to mention this because you hear this so often, right, in the especially in uh, you know conservative debates and so forth is. But, you know, this is a private company. It should be able to do whatever the, it wants. <laughs> the telephone's are a private company. It has to provide service to
0: everybody. Telegraphs were private companies. They have to provide service to everybody. Restaurants are private serv- companies. They have to provide service for everybody. Schools, um, higher education, they're private uh, institutions. They, ha- they-, they can't discriminate. What these social media companies do is they provide a service just like just like the telephone company, just like um, uh, um, FedEx, and that it's perfectly reasonable and within in the bounds of, of constitutional authority for the states to say, look, you have to serve everybody. They follow your rules. They agree to follow your rules. You have to serve them. And. Uh, um, and the
1: rules can't be, your viewpoint has to be asked. Right. Exactly. Right, I mean, right, right.
0: you're right. The, 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 that's like the genie, you know, hey, you have three wishes, you know, I want 12,000 wishes. You can't play that rule can't game. Um, and the platforms have this wonderful sort of, you know, protean identity. On one hand, when they're getting protection under section 230C1, they say, oh, when we content moderate, when we use our editorial discretion, that's... To use the statute's term speech of another. So we get protection under that, which is what I'm talking about, this expanded notion of C1. However, when they were when they were um, uh, challenging the Texas social media law, they said, oh no, no, all the statements on our platform are our own expression. We are expressing ourselves somehow miraculously through the billions and billions of tweets or, or postings, and that creates a coherent message, or so they claimed. Um, luckily, um, uh, Judge Andy Oldham, who's I think one of the you know great rising stars of the uh, uh, federal judiciary, said no. That makes no sense. You can't have. It both you can't ways. have
1: both at the same yeah, time. It just seems kind of obvious, isn't it? It, it does. Um yeah.
0: But we can talk a little bit about you know why why the courts have been so open to Section Two Hundred and Thirty expansion. Um, I think. You know, judges in general you know, like easy ways to dispose cases, and you know, liability protection does that because at the beginning of cases, they're like, oh, you know, done, <laughs> cross it off, next. Um, also, uh, it's, a, it's a weird conjunction of ideologies. I mean, I think, and we'll see this when the issue gets up to the court, you know, a lot of Republicans are very libertarian, and they're open to this idea. It's like, our wires, we get to do what we want to, it. the First Amendment guarantees it. And the Dems, uh, the liberal judges, they like the censorship in there. <laughs> uh, so it's been a perfect storm where, where judges on both sides of the aisle have unified to um, expand C1 and only recently um, have people like Justice Thomas in, in, in separate statements um, as well as some of, some of the other judges in the lower, lower courts have said, no, this is crazy.
1: Mm. Well, so let's talk about this Texas uh, social media law, which I know you're a fan of.
0: Yes, I'm a great fan of them. So, um, uh, and uh, you, know, you know, kudos to um, uh, Governor Abbott, to um, Senator Hughes, um, who really were you know, allowed this to happen. Um, and it's a very straightforward law. It's short. The disclosure provisions are a little bit longer, but you know, your your viewers should just you know look it up. HB twenty, Texas social media law, even if it's on the internet. And all it does is says is say um, platforms cannot. Um Discriminate on the basis of viewpoint, and that doesn 't mean that they can 't get rid of content they don 't like, so you know Facebook can continue its ban on nudity um, you can you can ban four letter words, but what it, it it does do is say, say that you can't ban, um, ban people on the basis of their viewpoint, so if I want to be an advocate for naturism, they can't um, uh cut me off um, but they could you know not. I'd if if allow
1: you to post your naturism photos. Yes, yes. exactly.
0: Precisely. It's I, I, a very unpleasant thought, so yeah. know, let's move on to the next question.
1: <laughs> All right. Um, yeah, I mean, pretty simple and straightforward, but being challenged.
0: Yes, exactly. So it was um, a liberal judge um, uh, struck it down in the district court. and. Um, uh, it was reversed and upheld uh, by um, the Fifth Circuit in a you know, really you know, bravura opinion written by Eddie Oldham. I thought it was just great. Um, and then CERT was taken by, by NetChoice. Uh, and we were all very excited to see what was going to happen um, earlier this year. And I think maybe because of the Supreme Court, they, they had too many hot dishes um, on their plates, or, uh, so to speak. Um, they punted. What they said is they said, okay, we're going to send this over to um, uh, the solicitor general for their opinion, for its opinion on whether we should take cert. Um, now, of course, for us in the business, that there, it was a little rich. I mean, because after all, Texas social media law was designed to prevent, among other things, to prevent government from pressuring the social media companies to... Um, uh, to, uh, to, to censor or throw off politically unpopular views. And so we're going to the <laughs> biden SGs, you know, given their, their, their record on that, on that, on that uh, topic um, to have their opinion. But there will probably take, si- you know, six to seven months and issue something in, in May or June um, and the court will vote on it. You know, we'll, we'll, we'll decide cert um, in the fall. So it will return. And the Supreme Court will have to sort out this mess.
1: So let's talk about some of the other First Amendment-related cases that the Supreme Court is taking up, and you know some of them are like have very profound implications. I mean, i think there's Three O Three Creative versus Alanis, uh Google versus Gonzalez. Just give me kind of a quick breakdown of what's going on and why it, why it's significant.
0: Sure. So. Um... Elenus, uh, the Three or three creative is sort of a, a reprise of on um, the famous Colorado cake master um case involving whether or not um anti discrimination laws involving gay people should apply to sort of small um, uh, artisan creators who are creating specialized types of products for individuals. Um, this time it's not cakes, it's wedding invitations. So um, a gay couple asked a religious web developer to do their wedding invitations and she refused and they brought action under the Colorado law that prohibited um, discrimination on the basis of, of, of sexual um, preference or identity. Um, and so this puts, you know, conservatives in a funny spot. On one hand, you know, we're fine with non-discrimination requirements um, for the social media companies in Texas social media. But some would say, well, conservatives are being hypocritical by saying um, uh, the um, wedding designer, well, wedding invitation designer, um, should be free on First Amendment grounds not to make the, the, the wedding invitation. Um, I think that's actually the wrong way to look at it. Um, you know, these non-discrimination requirements of the sort that Texas um, is imposing um, have been imposed on these sort of large network industries that provide sort of a commodified service um, that are largely unexpressive. Um, nobody thinks that when someone uses the telephone and defames you um, that it's the telephone company speaking. Um, furthermore, these services can be provided on essentially an impersonal basis, as opposed to wedding invitations, where you know you sit down with the, the, the bride and groom, and and you know we'll have a detailed um, uh, um, invitation that works with them to sort of express their particular preferences, um, and that um, this sort of bespoke, um, very sort of individualized work that involves. the the commitment and and intellectual work of uh, one individual is a very different situation. Um, And I think uh, the court can sort of reasonably distinguish that and sort of say, no, we can't have anti-discrimination laws here that implicate not just an individual's creative endeavors, um, their individual work, um, but also their religious affirmations. I mean, I think they could, could just say this is the First Amendment, Freedom of religious expression, not even get into actual speech issues, as opposed to um, saying discrimination on online. Where if if the court says that the Texas social media law is unlawful, I mean, all of our public accommodation laws will be suspect um, because you know the lunch counter will say, "I'm going to express myself by having an all-white lunch counter or a black-white lunch counter." Um, uh, the um, uh, airline will be able to express themselves by having only you know, people of a certain religion, um, in the same way that the platform expresses themselves by only having people of, of a certain viewpoint. Um, and so if the court you know, tries to make it consistent in that way, they'll open up a Pandora's box.
1: So it's an interesting issue, and I think the court has to just sort of uh,
0: draw the right line between
1: them. A significant part of the distinction you draw is one of scale. Yeah. one idea at a small scale, it can become a nightmare at a large scale, even though it's a perfectly good idea at a small scale. anyhow. D- topic for another day. Um, Google versus Gonzalez you yes. know, as we as we kind of finish up.
0: Yes, yeah, so, so this is an interesting case. Um, the Google plaintiffs um, they represent uh, numerous individuals whose family members were killed um, in terrorist incidents. Um, and the theory of the Gonzalez plaintiffs is that YouTube's targeted recommendation radicalized um, the terrorists to commit their deeds. So there is a large causation issue here and the court was uh, was very uncomfortable with it. Not only in, in this case, but the companion case that was argued the, the next day, Tamna. Um, so the, that, it could go away solely on that issue. Um, but. The case does present a very interesting section 230 C1 um, the issue that goes back to what we were talking about earlier so you know when you go to YouTube you have these recommendations on the side once you listen to a video and the question is, are those recommendations the speech of YouTube or are they the speech of the users? YouTube says they're not our speech they're the speech of the users because we're just sort of because the users
1: made them the users yeah. made yeah. them.
0: But Gonzalez plaintiff says, "Well, you created the algorithm that selected them, so they're yours." Now, how that works in C one is, C one protects you if they're the statements of your users. Uh, the telephone company has no liability for the for their user statements; so they're libelous. Similarly, YouTube has no liability for you know the the videos um, their users upload. But if the the speech of the platform itself then they would have liability. So that's the way C1 works. And the, it was a very unusual argument. I think the, 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 the justices were very confused. Um, and I, it was you sensed a sense of discomfort. So I'm, I'm, I'm hopeful um, that they will punt this issue and, and, and not deal with it and just say, we have problems with the underlying claim, at least from my selfish perspective. Um, but my, of course, my fear is that they might in fact take this opportunity to cement these sort of expansive Section 230 protections that we, we spoke about earlier. Mm. So.
1: There's a significant case to be made that, you know, it's YouTube that decided what would go there. Technology really has changed our
0: expectations. Yes, it clearly is. They created the platform, and yet there's a tremendous resistance to saying they have to be liable for it. I mean, we treat them in this special little world. I mean, if, if this had been a newspaper and had delivered uh, stories saying, oh, look about this you know, great terrorism, wanna learn more about all these great terrorist activities, of course um, we would have held them liable. Um, but there's something about these
1: online,
0: um, uh, online tools that make people feel differently. And
1: uh, I haven't quite figured it out. Fascinating. How do we deal legally with this disinformation industrial complex that's developed? Because it seems to not fit neatly into any existing rules. I mean, that's just my gut feeling, but why don't you tell me?
0: I I think you're right. And I think largely because it's a product of the the fourth branch of government, the administrative state, Um, we have given power to these agencies, the gobbledygook alphabet soup of of security agencies um, that are not really accountable to anybody. Um, And like any other agency, they tend to be um, co-opted by special interests. And I think that's a very dangerous brew. Uh, It's hard to prove. It's hard to bring to to the sunlight and shine sunlight on. Um, and it's hard to bring accountability into. So uh, it's going to be a real challenge. Um, it's, it's one of the difficulties of our time.
1: Well, Adam Kandub, such a pleasure to have you on. Thank you for having me, Jan. Thank you all for joining Adam Kandub and me on this episode of American Thought Leaders. I'm your host, Yanya Kelleck.